So students are back? It looks like it. Yeah, that's good. Uh, Welcome back, students. Hope you had a nice time off. I'm thoroughly jealous of extended time off. Uh, it, uh, It just doesn't happen that much when you get older and have a job and stuff. And uh, also, welcome back to Lauren Cabrera. Welcome back, Lauren. We missed you terribly, and welcome you back with the students. Um, So it's a good day to be back, because it is the very end of Matthew chapter 28. Yeah, three years in the running. I actually may preach on this again, just because I can't leave my note, because there's other things on my heart for this passage. So I may, I may preach on Matthew one more time, but for those of you who don't go to our church, we've been going through the book of Matthew. It's taken us close to three years to get through the book, and we are Matthew experts at this point, because uh, we have gone line by line, precept upon precept. But we are in Matthew chapter 28, the final chapter of Matthew, and we are at the famous passage that is known as the Great Commission. So we're going to talk about that today. And uh, it's a big, hearty passage that's hard to get through even in, in one, one sermon. I also realized last week, after my wife enlightened me, that I preached for like over an hour last week and probably nearly killed most of you. And so I, have a <laughs> I appreciate the encouragement. Other people around you are like, stop encouraging him. <laughs> he needs to preach shorter. Um, I've sat in those pews for 45 minutes, and it's, uh, it's not the easiest thing in the world. So I'm going to try to preach shorter today. Uh, but we are going to jump into Matthew chapter 28, verse 16 is where we'll start. So join along if you would like. It'll also be up here, reading from the NIV. All right, so this is all the way at the end. Jesus has resurrected, and he's talking to his 11 disciples, and this is their last moment together. So think about this. They they lived life on life for three years. They talked about a lot of things, and your teacher is just about to leave, and these are his parting words for you as his disciples. Then the 11 disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. When they saw them, they worshipped. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. Jesus, as we walk through this passage, I pray for your revelation in your life on the things that you care to say. In Jesus' name, amen. So the part that I want to zero in on this time around is the disciple aspect of this. So there's 11 disciples, and they go to Galilee. They've been following around Jesus. They're standing there, and they get their instructions from their rabbi, and the instructions that their rabbi gives them is to go and make disciples. So there's this thing in this passage that's clearly anchored by discipleship. Both that's who the people are that he's talking to and giving the mission to. And then it's also a part of the command that he's giving them as his final command for their life mission. And so we talked last week about how there's probably a lot to work them through, that they had to kind of bring them back to their hometown, and he had to kind of deal with their disappointment, bring them back to simplicity, prepare them for this mission that he's about to give them. But this is the moment 
where the teacher gives the students their mission, and probably somewhat to their surprise, they hear something that says, therefore go and make disciples of all nations. That's just strange. Like, what does that even mean, Jesus? Like, their context is being discipled by Jesus for three years. And it looked like something very specific. Like, if you think about what it looked like for them, their discipleship started with Jesus calling them out. So it started like an invitation from the teacher and said, come and follow me. That was what he asked them to do. And as, as, he, as they followed him around, that's a key part of discipleship. Discipleship wasn't just like going to a classroom and sitting under a professor. It wasn't like coming to church on Sunday and hearing a message. It was close, life on life, every day together, sleeping in the same, you know, when outside, sleeping right next to each other, when inside, sleeping right next to each other. You know, you eat the same things, you encounter the same things, you're just like always together, always doing life. This is what discipleship was. And there was a few things that they were getting in this life-on-life contact. One, they were getting his teachings— Two, they were getting molded by him—I'm sorry, getting those teachings modeled by him. Three, they were getting instructed as they tried to follow in those things, so think of like coaching almost. And then the last one is they were receiving accountability. But this discipleship thing was very holistic. It was very in-depth. It was very close and life-on-life. And if you try to translate that into, okay, our mission is to go and disciple nations— like, what does that even mean? Like, how do you go and invite nations into a relationship where you're their teacher? Like, what? Right? Like, he's transitioning the disciples from being disciples to be rabbis. Discipleship was something that they knew well. It was very common in this culture, and they had a very clear picture as to what this is. And they're like, okay, first of all, I just denied you like a chapter before. Am I ready to be the teacher? had to be going through their head. And then it feels like they amp up the call from discipling 11 people or 12 and one gets lost to, to discipling nations. It, it just, if you make this real, it's, it's very strange and very much like, where do you start with this whole thing? So the first thing that I want to talk about is this idea of discipling nations. Um, and I want to start with the question— do the nations need to be discipled? <laughs> it's kind of an interesting thing because by saying that the disciples need to go and be their teachers, by extension, he's saying that, hey, disciples, the nations have something to learn from you. And I think for us as Christians, let's make this real for a second, one of the visions for our life or the realities of today should be that we could be called out by Jesus to be able to be a discipler of nations, to be somebody who could be a teacher of nations. That's a pretty crazy thing. And I'll tell you why it feels especially like a crazy thing to me is because usually when I talk about the ills that are going on in the world, and I'm about to talk about some of that, I usually start with the church. And I'm usually like, man, if we're going to talk about stuff in the world, man, our house better be in order. And I believe in that, and I talk about that all the time. 
it feels a little bit difficult for me as a disciple of Jesus for him to say, okay, all right, now you're the teacher of the world. Like, go be the teacher. Immediately, I'd be like, man, I don't know about that. Like, can I spend 50 more years getting my house in order? <laughs> right? And I feel like the disciples would certainly say the same thing walking into this. Right? And so when I talk about what we're about to talk about, I just want to say that the disciples were in a place where they were probably willing but feeling very ill-equipped. And Jesus comes to them and gives them this crazy call. And I'd be like, man, why are you choosing me? Like, isn't there somebody better? And I think if there was somebody better, Jesus probably would have chosen them. Like, in the Old Testament, when Jesus chooses Saul to be king of Israel— and it doesn't end that well. It says that God picked, like, the best person for the job. <laughs> that's, why, that's why he didn't want them to have a king, right? Is he looked through all of Israel, and he said, well, it's kind of a shortage here, but I guess I'll pick the tall guy. You know, like... <laughs> but, but he was probably the best of the group. And I remember this one time, I felt like God was telling me to go preach on Sproul. And I was really resistant. And I felt like God was saying, like, if not you, who? Like, who else is going to go? And so I think for us as a church, I think recognizing that we probably feel exactly the way the disciples did. But I think there's like, there's two pieces of it. One, let's not wait for perfection. But two, Let's have this be a vision for our life that he's called us to disciple nations. And if he's called us to disciple nations, there's got to be a thing in us that's like, okay, that's a really big call. Like, I need to be in some serious training. Like, I need to be on the court addressing life as if my call is to be a teacher of the nations. And when you have that kind of starting point, it changes the way you do life. You don't just go through life cavalier thinking that you can just kind of do it like, like everything else, you know, around you. There's like, there's a training and equipping, and it's like, man, if this is, if this is the call of my life, then I better figure some stuff out. And so we're going to talk about that at the end. But the first, the, the, the second thing that I wanted to call out is Jesus's heart in calling them to disciple nations. In Matthew chapter 22, he looks at Jerusalem and he says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who killed the prophets and stoned those who sent you, how often have I longed to gather you Gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under the wing, but you are not willing. How often have I longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers? It's so nurturing, and it's so um, uh, parental, right? It feels like Jesus is taking a place uh, of a parent over Jerusalem and just saying, man, like, I long to be your teacher, He's looking at Jerusalem and saying, like, you kill your prophets, you turn away from God, your teaching is a mess, the religious leaders that you have are blind guides. Like, it's kind of a mess. And Jesus looks down on this and says, man, I just long to be your shepherd. I long that you would receive my nurture. I long that you would allow me to be your teacher and to walk you into the path of life but you won't let me. 
And so what we need to see is five chapters later when he's giving the the Great Commission, this is the heart of the Great Commission. The heart of the Great Commission is Jesus looks out on a world that so desperately needs a Savior and needs to be taught. And he looks at the 11 people and he says, okay, you're the best equipped. I've spent three years with you. You're going out. You're going to disciple nations. Here you go. That's what's going on here if we, if we break it down. And what I propose to you is the desperate need that he saw when he looked over Jerusalem is the same desperate need that he looks now when he looks over our world. God's heart breaks when he looks over our world in a similar way that it did when he looked over Jerusalem. There's nothing new in that. And the thing that we need to recognize is that our world is a mess because of sin. There is one reason why our world is a mess right now, and it's because of sin. Sin is the idea of turning away from God and going your own path and choosing a path that's different than God's. And if we look through all of human history, the world has always been a mess because of this one thing turning away from God, saying, I don't need you, Creator. I'm going to try to figure it out myself. I'm going to try to walk my own path. I'm going to try to lean on my own understanding and do things my own way. And the world is a mess because billions of people have chosen to do that over and over and over again, including you and including me. The crazy thing is, we, as a ch- uh, we have this Bible app thing going as a church, um, and we're in, we're reading through the book of Genesis. The world becoming a mess because of sin happened really, really fast. <laughs> it's not like we did great for 16 generations and then someone screwed up. I am struck reading through the book of Genesis as to the narrative that happens here. Adam and Eve, perfection in the garden, walking with God in the cool of the day. And they choose wrong. They turn away from him. They lean on their own understanding. And sin enters the world. And then they learn their lesson, and it takes ten generations. No, 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 no. Cain and Abel happened right after that. They're direct descendants. Like the next—their offspring has murder in the first generation. If you're not familiar with the story, Cain gets jealous of his brother Abel because the Lord accepts Abel's offering— and denies Cain's offering. And he says to Cain, why are you angry? Why is your face downcast? If you had done what is right, look, would I not have accepted it? But if you don't do what's right, sin is crouching at your door. Its desire is to have you, but you must rule over it, Cain. Please, Cain, rule over your sin. (laughs) Now Cain said to his brother Abel, Let's go out to the field. While they were in the field, Cain attacks his brother Abel and kills him. This is the second generation. This is like the direct descendants. Genesis 6 is the account of Noah and the flood. It's about a thousand years later, but because they lived for like a bazillion years back there, it's only like one generation. In Genesis 6, it says, The Lord saw how great the wickedness of the human race had become on the earth, and that every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart was evil all the time. 
the Lord regretted that he had made human beings on the earth, and his heart was deeply troubled. Do you get the heart of God in all this? He's looking out over a world that is just a mess because he's empowered humanity to make choices. And then over and over and over again, humanity keeps making bad choices. I was having dinner with uh, some work friends on Friday night, and we were talking, we were doing like the work, the catch-up thing. And we have kind of like a system to the way that we catch up on life. It's like, oh, let's talk about, you know, significant others, and then let's talk about uh, work stuff, and then let's talk about like anything fun that's going on, and we like kind of bounce around and go around and, and, and talk about updates. And so, you know, we're starting out, and they're like, hey, why don't you start out? Like, what's going on with Suki? You know, and I'm like, how, how much do I share about what's going on in my wife's life? Because her entire life is a testimony to Jesus. And so I'm like, okay, here we go. Like, <laughs> here, here we go. And so I say, you know, she's been on a sabbatical for almost a year, and she's come off of it recently because she's gotten some, like, really powerful revelation from God. And it's like, and it's like, okay, like, what does that mean, right? And, then, and so I go, well, she's been grappling with the question of like, how is there so much disaster and hurt and pain and suffering in this world? But like, how do you reconcile that with the God that like deeply loves this world? That's not like a trivial question. She's not satisfied with trivial answers. She's been going deep on that for like a year, reading and praying and studying and asking God for real answers. And, you know, <laughs> it's like, So, did she get any answers, right? And I said, yeah, are you, are you sure you want to hear these answers, though? Right? And they're like, yes, I want to hear these answers. And so, you know, I was basically, like, this wasn't super long and drawn out, but I was like, our belief is that God created a world. That world was beautiful, and he created people with, with the best. Like, they were created in his image, there couldn't have been a higher image to create humanity in. He's just, oh man, like, let me give you the best world I can possibly create, and let me give you this amazing image of mine that's now in you, and this lofty place is creation, and he said, let's do this. Like, fill the earth. Let's multiply, and we can have this amazing relationship together. And from the very start, humanity has chosen away. And as humanity has chosen away from what is good, they've chosen what is bad. And what, if they've chosen what is bad, that this isn't fake choice— this is real-life choice. He's really given us authority. He's really given us choice. And so as we've chosen badly, then pain and suffering and hurt enters the world. And then we're in this situation where God desperately wants to help, but he's also empowered free will, and that's where we find our world today. Like, that's basically the story of human history. And I think that's what we see in Genesis. That's what we see when Jesus is crying over Jerusalem. And that's what we see when we look out on our world today, you know, just a, a few things. I mean, I think we live this all the time, but there's just crazy stuff that's so front and center in our world everywhere today, right? There's, there's tent cities in our city where there are people who don't have anywhere to stay. There's people with purposeless, feeling purposeless, disconnected from their meaning, not knowing 
that they're created in the image of God and having depression grip their life. Like, grip their life. You think about the truth that's in the Bible, which is God's at the center of everything that's going on. Like, all of this is created for him, and it's meant for him, and it's created by him. Like, all of that is going on. And what the world has done is exchanged that truth for, actually, you know what's at the center? Me. I'm at the center. Like, even what I believe to be true about God is mostly about me. Like, ask me how I do my relationship with God, and it's whatever I've deemed to be best. The prescription for our relationship, this thing with God, it's not his prescription, it's my prescription. The spirituality that I've chosen is the one that seems most right to me. Rather than even at the core looking to God and saying like, I have no idea how to find you. Like if this thing is going to work, it's going to work because you tell me how to find you on your agenda with your ways because your very person is the truth. Your very person is the way. But instead we've changed a God-centered life that leads to richness and joy and and fulfillness, to, and we've replaced it with one that's human-centric at the, very, at the very core. And then we've decided we're the best person to decide what's true and not true. And so now it's like, hey, there's no absolute truth defined by God. The, the truth is just yours to determine what's true and what's not true. All of these feel academic. None of these are academic. All of these things lead to real outcomes that we see in the world. When, when you say, when, when we say, you, you've been made by a creator and you've been made in his image, and the world says, I've not been made by a creator, I've been made by random chance, by a big explosion that just happened and then, you know, through some, some pretty cool chaos, now, now this exists. When you, when you make that leap, this isn't neutral stuff, guys. We need to directly tie these wicked lies to the outcomes that we see today. We're too cavalier at being like, oh yeah, like, you know, yeah. Yeah, you believe what you believe and I'll believe. No, this ends up in the world that we're looking at right now. Lies lead to destruction. And the world is literally discipling the nations in lies and destruction that is leading people to be imprisoned and held captive and in depression and etc., etc., etc. These lies matter. Did you know that this week New York, as a state, legalized late-term abortion? It's, it should be absolutely appalling to all of us. This means with a perfectly viable baby in the womb, nine months, if the patient determines it's better for their mental health that they terminate the baby, they can have an abortion. These are the fruits of lies that say that you come from random chaos and that you're not made in the image of God. When you're just, you know, another banana slug or something else 
then it doesn't matter when you're terminating life. But if you're created in the image of God, this is utterly appalling. And the reason why I'm saying this is not for like a big bummer trip. I'm saying the nations need us. Like they need to be, we need to be discipled by mature people that know the truth. The Bible says that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. This means that when any, any topic for you gets really confusing, you know where the beginning of wisdom for that topic starts? It's the fear of the Lord. So you, you, you come to a place and you're like, wow, I, I, like, I can't mentally get myself out of this loop. And you go, I know where the starting point to the beginning of wisdom that will end with truth is. I'm going to walk back here and I'm going to start with the fear of the Lord. He is the center of everything. I only matter to the extent that he says I matter. Thank God he says I matter a lot and died on the cross. <laughs> right? Like, he is the only one who knows truth. You know, in, in the Bible, it talks about the version of the world's wisdom. And I didn't write it down. <laughs> but it basically goes like this. The world's wisdom is absolutely foolish to God. And you know why the world's wisdom is absolutely foolish to God? is because it doesn't start with the fear of the Lord. It doesn't start with a posture of reverence that's like, God, without you as my starting point, my middle point, and my end point, I have nothing. I have no chance at finding my way out. I'm going to be one of the ones that you call over Jerusalem and you say, you're turning away from me, you're killing my prophets, you're walking in the wrong direction, you're contributing to the chaos in the world. That will be me without your intervention. If I choose to walk through life and lean on my own understanding, and the way that we lean on our own understanding is by choosing what feels right in the moment. It's by choosing in that moment and going like, yeah, I, I know that God says this is the path of life, but I'm going to walk this path of life because that feels too hard, or, you know, like, I've been disappointed, or whatever it is, like, we all have hard paths, and the hard part, too, is we look at the church, and we go, oh my gosh, God, your church is a, your church is a mess, too. Like, so many of us have been to churches that haven't done that well, and been hurt by our best Christian friends, and, I mean, that's part of the story of this church, it's that we couldn't see eye to eye, and there was hurts going back, I mean, it, accusations and and missing it and it's part of the church's story too so it's like it's it's really tough but then you step back and you go okay it's confusing for me right now i need to start at the beginning the beginning what's the beginning of wisdom it's the fear of the lord okay god i remember who you are you're the center of all of this all of this is for you and by you and the cross of christ tells me that there's victory at the end of this thing I don't know what it looks like from here to there, but I know that the cross of Christ says that one day you care enough that you're going to wipe away all of this stuff. Okay. Now speak to me about this issue. Now that I remember that you're the centerpiece, now that I remember that my wisdom is foolish, now that I remember that you and your very person are truth, tutor me and teach me. And you start from this place of humility, not accusation towards God. You start from this place of humility where you're like, I desperately need you. And guys, this is just, this is just an I need you to like do life. I'm not even talking about what we, where we started from. 
which is discipling nations. This feels like just doing life together. I want to call out a few other things that that are going on in our day that I feel like we need to just be aware of. There's a, a like, human potential self-actualization thing that's going on right now that's really wicked and vile. And if we had kept going through the book of Genesis, where we would have ended pretty quickly after Noah, roughly a thousand years later, which again was like five people. (laughs) In Genesis chapter 11, it says, they said to each other, come, let us make bricks and bake them thoroughly. They used brick instead of stone. So this is the story of the Tower of Babel and tar for mortar. Then they said, come, let us build ourselves a city, a tower that reaches to the heavens so that we may make a name for ourselves. Not far after the flood and the world is repopulated, we find this this thing where humanity is building a tower to make a name for themselves. And what is a very common pull for us right now is for us to make a life out of making a name for ourselves. There's this orientation, especially in this area, in Silicon Valley, in the surrounding area, where it's like, your mission in life is to build something that changes the world. The funny part about that is it sounds pretty good, like, when, as a starting point, but it's not built on the foundation of building a name for God. It's all about building a name for ourselves. And what is this at the core? Again, it's putting humanity at the core and removing God from the core. Our life is not about building a name for ourselves. It's not about building your own legacy. It's not about making an impact that lasts through generations disconnected from God. All of this sounds really great, except it's antithetical to God's purposes from the very start. Our whole lives are dedicated towards His glory and Him being at the center because that's the place where humanity thrives. That's His design for creation. And as soon as we start to take the things that are good connected to Him and disconnect them from Him, they're vile from the core. And this is one of them. And so there's this huge thing, this huge pull for us is to like, Make a career that's so incredible, man. You be the CEO of this company and take this company public and like make a product that changes the world. And it's never been easier because of software and like the interconnectedness of the world. The connectedness of the world feels so much like the Tower of Babel. And there's this crazy part in the middle of the story about the Tower of Babel where it says, let's make it with bricks. Let's not make it with stone. What's the difference between bricks and stone? Bricks are man-made. Stone is God-made. Even the foundation of the building blocks were secular humanism and centered in we can do it better than God can do it. So subtle, but at the end of the day, 
God goes, this thing that you're doing, you're so, like, think about original purpose. I've created you to be in this thing where there's this great symbiotic relationship with God and each other and connected and love and truth and you're doing things like you're designed to do. Totally disconnected from that. I'm going to make my own stuff, God, and then I'm going to build my own building and it's not going to be to love on you. It's going to be to love on me. It's going to be amazing and it's going to feel good and it makes sense to me and it's going to be this tower that reaches to the heavens so that I'll be like God. There's so much of this flying around going on right now. And I think it's kind of funny when you and I stop and we start to get really angry at God for the bitterness in the world, for the hurt in the world. Like, I've done this too. God, like, how could you let me go through this situation in my church that I ended up shredded on the end? God, like, how could you allow me to be in that, in that relationship that, like, man, that did not end well, and I got destroyed, or like, how could you allow me to experience this in the world, or that in the world? And I feel like God's like, why are you pointing the finger up here? Like, from the very get-go, he's been very clear about the path of life, and the ramifications for choosing away from him, and then we're so angry at God, or at the end of the, like, have we forgotten that this is all lies and, and sin that's doing all this? God's not the one to blame. I'm going to do one other one, just because we're having so much fun with these happy topics. <laughs> Sexual relationships. This is another great example. I know, I was like, Ugh. <laughs> Sexual relationships. God has designed sexual relationships to be so beautiful and life-giving and fun. And, yeah. Married folks, feel free to chime in here. <laughs> all y'all, all the rest of y'all, chill out. God has designed sex because what he intended was for one man and one woman to come together to connect sexually and through the sexual act be fused together where the two who were once one in Adam and then the woman was taken out of his side and they became two come back to one and sex is the mechanism that God has chosen to fuse you together as one again so that's the intention that's God's idea it leads to unity, it leads to oneness, it leads to intimacy, it leads to feeling like you want to stay connected. Okay. Now take that and apply it to this other situation that we have in our culture now, where there's such thing as casual sex. This one over here, it's a lot of things that are awesome. Casual is not one of them. There is nothing casual about this, actually. It's the farthest thing from casual that there is. This one over here, like, think about this. Like, you go have, you go have sexual relationship with somebody, and then it's a one-night thing, and you move on. And the thing that was supposed to stick you together to that person, it works. And it rips a little piece of you, and it's left with that person, and vice versa. 
And then you go and you do it again, and it rips, and you're a little, there's a little bit more of you left on that person and vice versa, because this is the way that God designed it to be. And it keeps happening over and over again, and then people wonder why their heart is shredded at the end of the day, and that everybody's looking for love and connection and nobody can find it, and our divorce rate is 75%. I'm not condemning anybody in here for living this part. Before Suki and I got married, I lived this part. My point is, is the world desperately needs to be discipled. My point is, you watch a movie, and this is just a given now, and it, it, that's discipling the nations in the way that you're supposed to look for the path of life. And the nations are being discipled. And the brutal part is, again, none of this stuff is neutral. This is ripping people's lives apart over and over and over and over again, where children are growing up without parents. And then it's continuing to the next generation, and it's snowballing, and then there's the effects of fatherlessness and motherlessness and our, I mean it's just like this is how this happens guys like God's ways he means them for blessing and for the path of life and for the for the world to to prosper under his leadership and as we choose and we try to make sense of it all and be like well, does it really matter, like, if I sign this document because I'm, like, pretty committed and we've been, you know, we're basically married? No, no, no. Like, that's worldly thinking. And I think the thing that's been happening for both Suki and I is as you start to realize this, what it starts to do is give you a hatred for darkness. Last week, we talked about how the desire for us is to become one with God. Right? Like, the, 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 the vision for marriage to become one with the other person, that's supposed to just be a manifestation of what our, our ultimate vision is, is oneness with God. <clears throat> and so he, he gives us a, like a physical display of what that looks like on the earth. I'm not choking up and getting cry. <laughs> <clears throat> I tend to cry a lot up here. That was not one of those. Uh, oneness with God is what he's going for. It's this thing where we hate what he hates because we see the destruction that it costs, causes and we love the things that he loves because we see what happens when truth is launched into the world and, and submitted under to, to his rulership. And so oneness is what we're going for. And so to hate what he hates is one of the signs <clears throat> of a very mature Christian. It gets back to the whole discipleship at the beginning thing. Like his disciples, when you're the disciple of somebody— what you love and what you hate is a direct flex reflection on your teacher. And, and the reason for that is because the nature of the discipleship relationship was you're supposed to mimic everything, like the person's thinking, their way of life, the way they did everything. They even dressed alike. I mean, it got kind of weird, right? But it was like you live life on life and you're really close. And that's what it's supposed to be like. So our call is to love the things that he loves and cherish them and celebrate what's good and holy and pure and exalt them and love them and then— hate the things that he hates, just be like, oh my gosh, this stuff is vile to me. And Suki talked two weeks ago about how 
We're not called to love this world in that way. Our affections are not to be tied to the ways of this world, because how the heck are you supposed to disciple the world when you're, when you're in the same ways? What are you teaching? Oh, you just taught me this. Now I'm going to teach you this. How am I going to lead you to have a life where there's zero tie by finances whatsoever? If I'm tied and gripped by finances and I think that they're the source of my happiness and my security and my comfort. How am I going to lead you into relationships where it's like beautiful and fruitful and like you're just like waking up and you're like, oh my gosh, like I love my spouse. I'm 50 years down the line and I love her way more than I did when we said I do. Like how does that happen over time? It's, we've got we've to do that. And the only way to do that is by following his ways and loving the things that he loves and hating the things that he hates. I feel like God is looking for a people that want to be teachers of the world. Discipling nations requires a rabbi. The word rabbi just means teacher. It's that simple. The discipleship, the teacher side of things that Jesus modeled was kind of like that of a parent. When you think about a parent, super selfless, right? Like one of the things that characterize a great parent is that they're oriented around their children. They take responsibility over their children. They say, whether my child turns out well or they don't, that's on me. I'm going to keep them close to me. I'm going to pray for them. I'm going to love them. I'm going to take their well-being as my responsibility. And I feel like God is just looking for people like, who is, who's going to step up and be the type of person that can take responsibility on in my house and in this world to disciple nations? Who's going to be selfless? Who's going to be responsible? Who's going to be the one that's committed and stable? It sounds so awesome up here. It's so hard in real life. Who's going to be the one that, like Jesus, they get smacked in the face, they get smacked in the face again, they forgive, they get spit on, they forgive, they get crucified on a cross, and while that's happening, they look down and say, Lord, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Like, who's going to have the character and the internal fortitude to be able to truly take care of people? We're talking about real people here. Like, these are people who will be mothers and fathers or leaders, responsible spiritual parents in the house of God and in the world. That when you go to work, other people around you view you as a source of life, and you're like a shelter of peace for them because you're around and because you're that kind of person, because you've decided to take ownership of people. But I feel like what God's talking about here is not just a, you know, I think— Far too long, the church has condemned the sin's world and just been like, oh, look at how gross it is out there. But there's no vision on the other side of it. Okay, you're calling me to holiness. Like, for what? 
So I can sit in a pew and I can be holy and not do all these fun things that the world is doing? Like, is that the vision of life? What I'm telling you is the vision beyond the holiness thing that we're talking about, the vision beyond not loving the world, is because you need to disciple it. <laughs> it's because you have a meaningful call on your life that's real. So the reason why I talk about all this stuff about like, Look at the world's versions of sin and, or sex and look at God's version is because I want to show you how desperately the world needs to be discipled. And once you see that, you go, oh gosh, like I hate wickedness and darkness. God's light is so beautiful. Like God, make me the type of person that can be your light in the world. Make me the type of person that can really truly carry responsibility in your kingdom. It's hard to carry responsibility. Like when you—we all have seen like the early parent thing, right? It's like the, the parents with the one-year-old and they're like blurry-eyed and like, you know, their clothes are all a mess because they've been barfed on and like, you know, probably like mismatched because they got, got up in the dark, you know, trying not to wake up the baby. It's like, oh my gosh, don't do anything. It's like responsibility is not easy. Responsibility is tough. But God is looking for a people that have the character— the internal fortitude, the holiness to be separate, set apart from the world, to love what he loves, hate what he hates, believe what he believes, reject what he rejects, and to be that in the world and to literally be the teacher of nations. That's the purpose behind it. It's not so you and I can kumbaya, although that's awesome. I love a good kumbaya session. That's not the end. And so I think next time we talk, we'll talk a little bit about more of like the discipling nations. What can that look like as we go out? But the starting point is right here. The starting point is a desire to fall before God on our face and say, wow, like that's the call. That's the person I want to be. I better get on my face and pray every day. I better be tightly knit into community around people that are doing the same thing. I better be committed to figuring out what this Bible says and getting it in me, not just in my brain, but in my veins, like pumping through my very being, that I just naturally think the way that he thinks. That's why all this stuff matters. So that we can love him, that we can honor him, and we can dedicate our lives to him, the one who's worthy of all glory and honor, the one who all of this is about, that we get to be the ones to exalt him to the place that he deserves and lead other, place, other people into that exaltation. That's all I've got. All right. Amen. So, so what we're going to do is we're going to have the worship team come up. I want to, I want to call for people to respond to this thing that I've been talking about, and specifically this. God wants a people who are willing to pay the price to become one with him, to think like he thinks, to love like he loves, to operate like he operates, to surrender our own understanding, 
and to follow him in his ways. God is looking for a people that will take up responsibility in his house to fight for this vision of being able to be somebody who can be trusted, who has amazing character, and is able to represent him accurately in the world. What I'd like to do is I'd like to—this is discipleship, by the way. Like, this, this is the call. But what I'd like to do is just allow you to make that call fresh again. Because I think sometimes we forget what this whole thing's about. And usually the way it works is we choose in, and then we realize, like, oh, I've partially chosen in. I need to choose in again. Oh, yeah, I've chosen in that much. Oh, wait, actually, I need to choose in deeper. And, and that's usually the way this thing's work. So this is, this is me saying, this is a moment where just you and God and in your community of people, you can say, God, like the disciples, I don't feel like I'm there. But that's who I want to be. That's who I want to be. And behind my want, there's going to be action. Behind my want... There's going to be a choosing in daily. As you lead, I'm going to determine in the power of, my, of your Holy Spirit to follow. Because I think sometimes one of the things that God's been kind of convicting of my heart is, I said this last week, you say you want me. You say you're in. But like, where is that showing up in your life? Where is the evidence of your discipleship showing up truly? And so what I'd like to do is just invite people, whoever is feeling stirred by the Holy Spirit, not that you're doing this in your own self-power and your own self-will. In fact, you're doing it with the fear of the Lord as the beginning of your wisdom and saying, Lord, without your power and without your, your influence behind me, all of this is meaningless. But I, based on what was just said, I step back into my place as a disciple and the desire to be somebody who can carry responsibility and to disciple nations. So what I want to do is just That's what you can do personally in worship with the Lord Do business with him talk to him. He's closer than the air you breathe If you want to come up and get prayer, there's going to be some prayer ministers, but we're going to worship the Lord And that's the business that i'd encourage you to do If you are stirred by the things that were talked about today